If you would, take your Bibles and join with me in turning to the book of Ruth, chapter 4. I want to take just a moment to welcome all of those who are joining us online. We're glad that we have the opportunity to serve you in this way, and we pray that this will be an encouragement to you. Ruth chapter 4, I'm going to be reading verses 7 through 12. Our, our focus will be on verses 10 through 12, but I want us to begin our reading for context, beginning in verse 7 and ver, uh, through verse 12 of Ruth chapter 4. Hear the holy, infallible word of our God. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who was coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This ends the reading of God's holy word. May he write its truth on our hearts today. Let's pray. Probably seen something on TV or maybe you read this story in a book where the proceeding began and there was the plaintiff and there was the defendant and both sides settled in. And there's been a lot of lawyer talk and opening arguments and uh, introduction of everything to the jury and so on and so forth. And it's pretty much laid out that this is going to be a long process. It'll be a marathon, not a sprint. And so everyone just gets settled and get used to being here because it's going to be a while. Some of you will remember along with me, probably the most famous trial that's ever taken place in America, the trial of O.J. Simpson. It went on for, if I'm not mistaken, 11 months. But then sometimes, and this is usually what you see on TV, the proceeding will begin and then the doors in the back will open and somebody will rush in and whisper to one side or the other and then they'll come up and they'll whisper to the judge and then all of a sudden... We've got this new evidence or we've got something and boom, the person is exonerated and they drop the case and the judge says, okay, this is over, dismissed. And wow, just like that. Well, this is much 
like the scene here in Ruth. Not, not exactly, but similar. We have a, a court scene, not a trial, but we do have a, a legal proceeding that opens and then proceeds and is over very quickly, isn't it? I mean, it, it perhaps may have gone on a little bit longer than what the text indicates, but if we just put a stop clock on it from the time that everything starts to the time that it's over, which we are almost at here in the text, it's only going to take a few minutes. And still, before we get to the end, I want all of us to recognize that in what we might consider the closing remarks, there is much to learn about the redemption that we have through our Lord Jesus. And I hope we see that today. We need to be mindful as we are looking way, 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 way back in biblical history that Jesus has come. Oh, what are the ramifications of that? <laughs> He's come into the world. He has suffered and died. And he has risen. Our redemption is complete. Jesus has done it. There's nothing else that he must do. Now, uh, as in the case here with Ruth, there are a few things that have to be worked out. And in our lives, there are things that are going to be worked out. We're still going to live out our, our days and our years. Whatever the Lord gives us. And we can be confident that he is going to ensure that we are kept safe. But... On the cross, you all remember what Jesus said, right? It is finished. Mission accomplished. He has done it. What does that mean? What does that mean for you that Jesus has secured your place for all eternity with this perfect redemption? Well, the peace that you and I know that comes from being justified is peace that we have now. We don't have to wait for this. This peace and this rest will be revealed to be greater in eternity, but we have this now. So we come here to the conclusion of the legal procedure at the gate of Bethlehem. And what I want us to ask ourselves is what is there left that we can learn about this great redemption that we have in our Lord Jesus? Well, let's, let's look and see. And we're going to begin by noticing in our text the declaration of the Redeemer. The declaration of the Redeemer. Now, for those of you who were here last week or uh, if you were listening online last week, you will remember that this is actually the second part of an address given by Boaz. His, his declaration began back in verse 9, and we saw that in the previous section there was a custom, a, a rather unusual custom, right? When something is, in their day was attested, uh, one person would take off their sandal and hand it to the other. And so uh, this is what we need to picture in our minds. Boaz is addressing this crowd, these ten elders, and, and everyone else who was gathered around to, to see this and to watch this. There he is with the sandal in his hand, explaining to everyone what is taking place here in the gate. 
And he's already mentioned in verse 9 the acquisition of the property. If you'll look there again, it says, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Milan. But we have to remember, this is just part of the transaction. This isn't everything. The redemption is not yet complete. There are other aspects to it. And so Boaz continues, and we see that the first one here is in verse 10, which is the acquisition of a wife. Acquisition of a wife. Look again, there it says, Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. Now, we went over this word last week, and so... Um, before everybody gets too bent out of shape and out of hand, what we recognize here is that there's a transaction taking place. Boaz is not actually laying down money and saying, okay, hand her over. I've paid for her. She's my property. But this word uh, is often translated uh, acquired or obtained. And so Boaz has acquired a wife. Now, there are a couple of things that stand out here in this declaration. First, remember that as far as the land went, the nearer Redeemer was ready to act. It was his, his desire to be the Redeemer. He would have redeemed the property, but upon learning that there's a widow involved and what this is going to entail is producing other children with this widow, well, he backs out. And what we're reminded of as we witness this procedure is not only Boaz's qualification and ability to act as Redeemer, but thirdly, and maybe most importantly, his desire, his willingness. The other person backed out and said, oh, I, I, I can't. I can't. You do it. It's all yours. Here's the sandal. <laughs> A second, I want you to note here in Boaz's words that he specifically names things about Ruth that are, shall we say, it might make her a little undesirable. <laughs> Notice that he calls her Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon. Now, for a man to obtain a wife in that day was a wonderful thing. It was a very festive occasion. But Ruth here really has two strikes against her. She's, she's a foreigner. Not just a foreigner, but a Moabite. These were ancient enemies. So she's an outsider, and she's also a widow. Someone who is already associated with death. And we have to wonder. Ruth had been married for some time and had not yet had any children. Is this a possibility? And nevertheless, Boaz desires this one to be his wife. This outsider, this one who seems to be barren, the widow of a dead man. Most everybody else, like 
the near redeemer would have said, oh, no, no, thank you. <laughs> I'm good. But Boaz says, no, no, I want her. I want her to be my wife. And he's acquired her. These things are not hindrances to him. I hope that you are able to recognize how this speaks of the redemption that we have in Christ. What's desirable about us? Nothing. What, what's, what is it about us? Is it our liveliness? <laughs> is it the potential that we have? Or are we dead in trespasses and sins before Jesus comes and redeems us? Well, I want you to notice also along with the acquiring of a wife is the mention of the raising of the name. Now, Boaz recognizes here his obligation not only to take a wife, one in which we recognize that a love has developed. I think that the meeting on the threshing room floor clearly indicates that. So Boaz is not just going about a business transaction. There, there is love here. They've fallen in love. But this is not a marriage just so that Boaz can be satisfied. He recognizes that there are implications, that he has obligations. And his primary obligation, as he says, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Melon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off. Do you see that? The purpose of this marriage, and that's what we have here, is this is a purpose clause is to perpetuate the name of the dead. Now, we've seen this word before. Do you remember what it means? Perpetuate or establish or probably best rendered here, raise up. That is, through this marriage and this potential child that will come, the names of the dead, Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon will live on. They'll live on in the, in the stories that are told to, to future generations. They'll live on in the documents in an official way. All the records that are kept. In other words, the purpose, at least on some level, is to bring back, to raise up the name of the dead. That is what this marriage is about. Boaz recognizes that. Remember, redemption always brings about resurrection. Redemption always brings about resurrection. And so we have an acquisition here. Boaz obtains Ruth to be his wife, and we have the purpose, that is the, the raising of the name of the dead. And then finally, notice that there is a result. And what is the result? Well, it's a permanent home permanent home in the last part of Boaz's address. The mention here that we see is of the brothers and the gate. Notice the last part of verse 10, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. Now what this means, brothers and sisters, is that not only will this name be resurrected through the union of Ruth and Boaz, 
But the result will be that the names of these dead will always be remembered and officially recognized within the covenant community. Remember, the gate is kind of an official place. That's where all the business took place. That's where important transactions took place. That's where the elders would be assembled and that's where witnesses would gather, such as we have here in this setting. If there were any discussions that had to be made, if there were any laws that needed to be uh, referenced, as they've done here in this proceeding, this was done here. This is where the assembly of the covenant community took place. And because this name is being raised up, what it means in essence is that the name that was dead but has been resurrected will always be a part of the covenant community. Now, I think there are a couple of ways that we can see how this might apply for us. First, there are several layers to this act of redemption. It's not just about Boaz getting a wife. As important as that is, this is a multi-layered thing, isn't it? It involves redemption of the property. And not just the property, but all the people, and not just Ruth, whom Boaz is going to marry, but also Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi. Remember Naomi, the, the bitter mother-in-law. <laughs> and not only her, but her dead husband and her dead sons. This redemption is far-reaching. And all of this is declared by Boaz, the Redeemer. By the way, that's how he's acting here. The other guy's out of the picture. And in my mind, he's probably gone. And so Boaz here, before the covenant community, makes this declaration as Redeemer. He is stating what has happened and what will be through this redemption. And what he's saying is, it's done. I've got the sandal. It's been accomplished. <laughs> Nothing else is in the way. And what we must see that this redemption is about not only love, but life. Life for the dead. It, it involves not only marriage, but rebirth. And I hope you see how that informs us of our redemption today. Now, Boaz is the redeemer, but he's not the only essential player in this scene. Uh, he has completed his declaration, but there's something else very important in this procedure that will take place. There are many others, how many we don't know, but... What I'm talking about are the witnesses and the affirmation of the redemption. The affirmation of the redemption. There are, uh, as we saw earlier, 10 elders. And then there's an unknown number, how many there are, we don't know. But there is a group and they are given an official position. Witnesses to this event that has unfolded before them. 
And there are three aspects that the text tells us about these witnesses. And the first aspect is their necessity. Their necessity. Again, uh, what we have unfolding here in Ruth chapter 4 cannot be uh, uh, considered official without them. They are necessary. You always have to have witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.5 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. One person couldn't bring a charge. There had to be others. There had to be witnesses. Sometimes these witnesses are, are composed of the entire community. For instance, in Joshua 24, verse 22, it says, Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve Him. You probably remember this famous passage from Joshua, right? Where Joshua says, Choose you this day whom you will serve. Me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And what does everybody say? We'll serve the Lord too. And, and Joshua says, okay, this is like court. I'm calling court into session. You are witnesses that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, just as the witnesses here in Ruth, we are witnesses. We agree. Sometimes you have not only people, but inanimate objects and Micah. Six, the Lord has, for all intents and purposes, called court into session. His people are on trial. And he says in verse 1 and 2, Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. And in this scene, it's the mountains that are around Jerusalem that serve as witnesses. So these witnesses are necessary. They must be there. The second aspect I want you to see about the witnesses is their continuance. And what I mean by this is that the witnesses are there throughout the entire procedure. They are an important part of this. From the moment that court is called into session until it is adjourned, they are there. So remember, this is an official legal transaction that has taken place. It's taken place out in the open, in the city gate, where everything that was important was done. And from verses 2 through 11, Boaz ensures not only that they are there functioning in their official capacity, but now here in verse 11, that they respond in kind. And just as in that Joshua passage that we referenced earlier, uh, we, we see here that the witnesses respond. Boaz begins in verse 9, You are witnesses, and then he concludes his speech at the end. You are witnesses this day in verse 10. And they respond, We are witnesses. Now the elders do this in an official capacity. But it seems that the witnesses include everyone there in this community of Bethlehem. Now remember, this procedure 
had interrupted what they were going about doing that morning. Probably most of them were going out to the fields. It's harvest time. There's, there's grain to cut. There's threshing to be done. And here they are on their way out. And Boaz, they see him gathering ten elders. Hey, we've got something to do. And when everybody sees that, they start gathering around. Okay? And as they do this, they function as witnesses, and no one could ever question what had taken place that day. I mean, if they did, we have an overwhelming number of witnesses. A legal transaction had taken place. The law had been consulted and followed and satisfied and it could never be disputed. And I think this speaks not only of the redemption that day in Bethlehem, but of our redemption as well. Amen. And then to help make this point, I want us to see one final aspect of the witnesses, and that is their commonality. Their commonality. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, again, the elders are working in an official role. Okay? They are elders. Uh, and that doesn't just mean that they were older. These were men officially recognized. It was a title that they had. They were recognized as elders. But the witnesses extend not only to those, but to everyone who voluntarily submitted themselves. Those who had gathered around were witnesses. And again, this is an official capacity. And again, what we see here is that this event that has taken place and that has transpired could never be questioned. People would never doubt this, right? If they did, if they ever called it into question, someone who was there who was a part of that community could say, oh no, it, it happened. I saw it. Now these witnesses, by the, the fact of them being members of this community, were, in a sense, affected by this redemption. This was a part of their, their community. One scholar notes this about marriages in that day. Marriages, while intensely personal, private, and domestic, also had a critical supra-household dimension and are thus public arrangements with economic, if not political, implications, end quote. And what he's telling us is that this transaction is not just, okay, this is Boaz and Ruth and nobody else. No, this was something that takes place that's going to affect our community. All of us are going to be involved to some degree or another, if nothing else, to attest that we saw it and that we will bear witness that Boaz did this, that he did it in the right manner, and it's a done deal. No one can question it. We have witnesses here who not only observe this, but recognize to some degree the implications of it. It's, it's the redemption of the community to some degree. Amen? So we have here in our text a declaration of redemption, an affirmation of redemption, there's one final thing I want us to see here. 
this morning, and that is redemption and benediction. Redemption and benediction. The witnesses serve not only to affirm this redemption, but when Boaz is finished and as he is concluded with his part of what he wants to say in his declaration, what do they do? Well, now they, they add their blessing. They conclude this procedure with a benediction, and there are three elements to this benediction that I want us to see. First, I want you to notice the mention of the rejected and barren. The rejected and barren. How do we see this? Well, I want you to look at verse 11. And it says, May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who have together built up the house of Israel. Now, uh, we have to go back in history to understand who these people are, right? This is uh, even in their day, going way, way back in time. And we'll recognize the names of these two women as the two wives of Jacob, right? Who was Jacob? Jacob was Abraham's grandson. Now, we remember the story, and if you don't, you can go back and read this and, and, and familiarize yourself. But Jacob had left his land. He had gone far away to, to get a wife, and he had served. And, and then on his wedding day, Jacob, the schemer, well, they had schemed against him and had given him the wrong one on purpose. <laughs> and he finds out on his wedding night when he lifts the veil, whoa, 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 you're not the one. And then you know the story, well, here where we live, this is how we do it. you got to have the, oh, oh, oh. He knows how that feels, or he should, right? But anyway, Jacob loved Rachel. And so he says, okay, fine, seven more years. I'll, I'll serve you seven more years for Rachel. And so Leah, in this story, is the wife who is not loved, rejected, right? She's, she's kind of the outcast. She's the other wife, and yet it was Leah who the Lord blessed with many children. Uh, she gave Jacob four sons before Rachel gave him any. And so what about Rachel? Well, this is from Genesis 29, 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Rachel's barren. Well, what did she do? Well, she's got an idea. I know what I'll do. And again, in their day and in their culture, I've got this servant and I'll give her to uh, my husband Jacob and, and the children that she has it will be as if I had them. And so, <clears throat> so she does this and she gives Jacob her servant girl Bilhah through whom two sons were born. Now when Leah realizes, oh, okay, she's going that direction, well, I'm going to do that too. So she gives her servant girl to Jacob. And so Jacob through Zilpah, Leah's servant, has uh, two sons, <clears throat> and then later, Leah has two more sons. And then, after all of this, we find this in Genesis 30, 22. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb, 
And she conceived and bore a son, and this son was Joseph. And then later on, she had another son, Benjamin. And so what are the witnesses saying here? Well, we hope that through this union, there will be such a great blessing, a great line that come from it, like that that was done through Leah and Rachel, the outcast and the barren. And Ruth, in many ways, uh, is a resemblance of those two ladies, right? She's a foreigner. She's, uh, in their culture, would have been outcast. Only Boaz in this story uh, is the one who has reached out to her and welcomed her and received her. She's also like Rachel. Up to this point, she's, remember, she was married for, for what seems to have been 10 years and no children were produced. This is why we have this situation that we have in Ruth. There's no heir. And so the witnesses call on God to bless this union and to bless Ruth. What had been accomplished through Rachel and Leah? Notice what they say. They together built up the house of Israel from two who you would not expect much of anything. Well, the Lord blessed and raised up and eventually built a great nation, didn't he? So here is a prayer of blessing for fertility and for a family, a, a great family as the Lord had done in the past. May he do this again through Ruth. And that's the first part of the benediction. But now we come to uh, the second part, which I call the reputable and the renowned. Now, the first part of this was directed at Ruth, but this second statement is directed at Boaz. And it says, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. <clears throat> now, what's strange about this request is that we've really already recognized Boaz as this kind of person, right? When we go back to chapter 2, verse 1, Boaz was there called a worthy man. Uh, and that is from the same root here that we have in our verse where it mentions uh, you know, may you act worthily. Well, this adjective implies that Boaz was valiant and prosperous and well-known and well-loved in the community. Well, if he's already that kind of man, why would you pray in this benediction and ask for him to be that kind of man? Seems a little redundant, doesn't it? Well, as you all know, sometimes when our, our situations change and we receive blessings from the Lord, sometimes we slack off, don't we? Sometimes we just kind of relish in that and, and we don't really pursue the Lord as we should. When things are tough, we pray, don't we? <laughs> We're faithful when we're going through the struggles, but when the blessings are coming, we just kind of, we put it on cruise. And I think what these witnesses are saying is that we don't want this to be Boaz. We want Boaz to continue down this same path, maybe even in a greater way. And I think this prayer, because of Boaz's great name, would extend this blessing to his descendants and ultimately 
to the one who fulfills this prayer, the Lord Jesus, our Redeemer. Now the benediction from the witnesses has one final part, and it's found in verse 12, where the witnesses say, And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, admittedly, this one will have us scratching our heads probably, right? And if you don't know why, I'll tell you a little bit of the story and then you'll be like, huh. Because it's just really not <laughs> a beautiful, glorious part of the history recorded here in Scripture. Uh, as a Hebrew in their day, you would have thought, well, why would they bring that up? Ugh. This story that they are referencing comes from Genesis 38. And we had already talked about how uh, the sons that were given to Jacob, one of them, probably the one to whom uh, the, the, the biggest prophecy would eventually be given, Judah, he goes to, to Canaan and takes a wife. Now, the text doesn't say that they were married, but I think it's implied there. But with this woman, Tamar, he has three sons. We, we fast forward a little bit. Um, actually, that was not the, the, the name of his wife. Uh, the oldest son grows up, and Judah takes a wife for her, and her name is Tamar. Uh, but this oldest son is wicked, and the Lord puts him to death. And so the second son is tasked with marrying this widow and producing children. This is really the first instance that we have of what we've talked about before in this book of Ruth, Leveret marriage, where the, the brother, the second brother, uh, marries the widow to produce children. But this Second son refuses to do this. And so like the oldest son, he too is put to death by the Lord. Now there's a third son. And he's not old enough to marry. And so Judah tells Tamar, the widow, just wait. And when he's old enough, you can marry him. And this can, you know, continue on. Well, as it happens... Judah, uh, his wife dies and he goes off shearing the sheep in this town where Tamar lives. And she disguises herself as a prostitute for the explicit purpose of enticing Judah because a lot of time had passed and he had not kept his word to give this next son to her. And it works. She entices Judah, and through their union, a child is produced, actually twins, two. And we think, you know, what a sordid, sleazy part of history. Why would you, why would you bring that up and, and, and ask for a blessing that, that is like that? That should be erased from history, right? But guess what? This is, this is real life, right? I mean, this is, uh, the Bible's just not 
Filled with glamorous stories, the Bible is filled with stories of God redeeming sinners. And this is what happens in this story. The Lord would speak through Jacob later and pronounce a blessing upon this son, Judah. That the scepter would not depart from Judah. That through this son and through this tribe, of which Boaz is a part. And I think that's why they invoke this name, Perez. So what this last blessing is requesting is that God would again intervene and produce from Ruth and Boaz a great house like he had done in the case with Perez where there, there should not have been a great family that had come up from that and yet there had been. A great clan had been reduced, produced. Boaz was from this clan. He was from this tribe. And as I'm inclined to see it, the prayer is that God will fulfill the promise of eventually bringing about this great king who would redeem all of God's people. Then guess what? We fast forward many, many, many years later, and that's exactly what he does. He sends his one and only son to take a bride Someone who should have been cast aside. Someone who had no redeeming qualities. Nothing desirous about this bride. And yet he takes her. Because he has a great love for her. That's the redemption that is pictured here for us in this story. In so many ways, myriad ways. <laughs> We've seen many of those implications today. May we relish in this redemption and worship our God who has redeemed us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, how thankful we are for the redemption that we have, so beautifully pictured here in this story. The redemption that we have through our great Redeemer, who you have raised up, our Lord Jesus Christ. We gather in his name today and we worship and we celebrate this wonderful redemption. And how we pray, Father, that you would work in our hearts through this promise that we have seen fulfilled and yet this promise extends into our future when we will be joined together as your bride with the bridegroom soon. Lord, make us ready for that moment. Please prepare us. Please continue to work in us. Please strengthen us through your gospel. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.